0: Tonight we begin to get into the book of Judges in our study of the Judges. It's been a little while. Maybe you thought the study of the Judges was going to be in the book of Judges a lot earlier, but we wanted to go thoroughly through our first two individuals because they set a very important pattern for us that I think is often ignored in this role. And so we wanted to take that time to look into those and so tonight, uh, we are actually in the book of Judges. And I'm not going to go verse by verse. We're really going to go um, judge by judge. And that uh, makes us go through the first few chapters very quickly. Of course, chapter 1, 2, and into chapter 3 really gives us an overlay of the circumstances following Joshua's death. What was life like in Israel politically um, religiously in terms of their relationship with God, and those two were the same. You can't distinguish their political identity from their religious identity at this point. Um, we are in a theocracy, which means God reigns, but he works through human agents, and that's been the case with Moses. It's been the case with Joshua. Um, and now, though, we have this interlude happening where there seems to be no leadership Um But again, we're going to look at some of the time frames involved here. We're going to find that, in fact, um, there probably aren't as many interludes as we think because these are regional. Some of these judges are very regional in their uh, influence and uh, perspective. But we want to look uh, through this a little bit. And we're going to have to, uh, with our first judge, who is Othniel. And uh, this is going to be right on the heels, really, of Joshua, although we are told that Joshua passes away, and everyone of the generation that experienced the Red Sea and uh, the wilderness. And so everyone that had seen all that had passed away, uh, possibly with just one exception, and that would be Othniel. And so there's some question about whether how younger of a brother of um, Caleb was he? And that's really brings into question how much he had seen of the working of God in Israel um, in Joshua's generation. And uh, so we're going to start off with him. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us and for the testimony and the uh, work that you did through these men. we pray that as we study each one, that we might consider our uh, ways and how you might use uh, your people today to influence um, your church, and even our society. And we pray that you might, uh, again, by your spirit, direct our study this morning, this evening. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are really introduced to Othniel, not uh, when he becomes a judge in chapter 3, but in chapter 1. And so let's go ahead and look at chapter 1. We are going to rehearse some of the, uh, the first few chapters of Judges are going to really rehearse the aspects of conquering the land that extended beyond Joshua's life. And of course, the one that we immediately think of is Caleb. He would have been uh, the peer of Joshua. And uh, we're going to have them uh, engage in this. And so we we come to um, uh, Judah, who within Judah's inheritance is Caleb's. And so, um, his, uh, the account of Caleb and his uh, conquering of his inheritance is within the context of Judah and Simeon uh, dealing with theirs. And so let's pick up in verse um, 12. It says, Then Caleb said, He who attacks Kirjath-sephir and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksha as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother took it, so he gave him his daughter, Aksah, as wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so this is where we are introduced to Othniel, and we find some information that uh, uh, there is some conflict between uh, what we have in the Masoretic and in the Septuagint. Um, and it's really a perspective of the Masoretic really handles this in a, in a softer way than the Septuagint does. Um, and so we find, though, that Othniel takes up the challenge and as we would assume, a pretty significantly younger brother than Caleb. But we don't know. We just know that very seldom, unless there's a substantial age difference, do they stipulate that facet. Usually it's just his brother. But this was very clearly his younger brother. Um, and so the evidence is likely a very much younger brother. Uh, remember that Caleb would have been up in age by this point. he says he offers his daughter... And um, and it might bother you a little bit that here is Uncle going after a prize for his niece's hand in marriage, as the as uh, the prize being the city and her being the reward, um, but not uncommon in this period of time, and uh, and did not was not fraught with the problems we have today genetically, um, because we are closer to the pure end of things, and also God's supernatural provision there I believe in the people of Israel and so we have the offer up there and uh, we find out something about Othniel and that is where is his inheritance Um, it's not up in the same region where Caleb's is Uh, you might say well their brothers are going to be real close at hand but in fact Caleb is in a mountainous area Remember, he says, I'm going to go after those sons of Anak up there. I'm going to take that mountain that everyone was afraid of when we spied out the land 40 years ago. I want that place where they talked about the giants walking around. I'm going to take down the giants. And he does. Um, But there was one town, and he just offers it up. See who's out there, uh, kind of a, not necessarily because he didn't want to take it himself, but I believe that he was looking for someone worthy of his daughter and puts that forward and said, Uh, Any suitors out there, um, prove your worth by taking out this city of the Canaanites. And this isn't, again, unheard of. Remember, David did that. Um, You're going to have, you know, Saul say, you know, you delivered to me so many, you know, foreskins of Philistines. And um, you can have, uh, and so it's not uncommon, um, but uh, to find that worthiness. But what we find is that then after the wedding there is this um, exchange, this information um, that Othniel is going to be to the south um, from where Caleb's going to be. And so his daughter um, has a request. And I want to read this out of the Septuagint for you um, because it reads a little differently and and, uh, it's... Uh, I think the preferred one, because there's a little bit of struggle here, why when she, it says that she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and you see a, a, uh, a marker there for your uh, side reading, and this column says in the Septuagint, the LXX, he urged her. Um, Well, it's more substantial than that. So let me read verse 14 to you out of the Septuagint, um, so you can get a a feel for it. Verse 14 says, And it came to be at the reception, that is of their marriage, Othniel urged her to ask her father for a field. And she complained and cried out from the from her donkey, You have delivered me into a southern land. And Caleb responded to her, What is your request? So Oksah said to him, give me a blessing since you have delivered me into a southern land. Give me the water as well. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs as was the desire of her heart. And so in this instance, we have Othniel um, going to her and saying, you know, this is my land, um, my inheritance. And there's something lacking in my inheritance and it's water. And so I have you and I have the land, but I don't really have water. And so he puts her up to asking dad for a wedding present. So at the receptions, she calls out from her donkey and says, well, you're going to send me away to this land in the south that has no water. And so he grants out of his inheritance these springs to, this, to his younger brother and his daughter, who are now husband and wife. And so we we have some indication that we know where Othniel is at. We know he's a, he's a mighty man of war, uh, very capable of handling himself. Um, he is settled to the south of where we know Caleb to be, um, and uh, we, we have him setting himself up and uh, we, to um, care for his family, to, to uh, have what is required to establish his residency there. And we really lose track of him. And there's more discussion of the conquering that was going on, Judah and Simeon especially, but but also going down through all the tribes, Ephraim, Zebulun. It goes through many of them and what they did and what they weren't able to do. And so um, Joshua passes, um, and uh, it says everyone of that generation dies away. And um, but apparently either we do not count Othniel as part of that generation or we find him to be the exception, that one left over. Yes? I've got, got a quick question because I'm going a little confused. Othniel is his nephew, right? Not his younger his brother. His younger brother. It's his younger brother's son. Because it? It, it says in 13, Othniel, the son of... Caleb's younger brother. Caleb's younger brother or his younger brother? We don't, uh, don't know like Caleb's younger brother that is Kenaz or Alfred. Correct. Yes, it can be either one. It can be either his nephew or his younger brother. Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. Um, who, is Kenaz who is Caleb the son of? Yeah. Okay, and so... We have both, and you look at the commentators, and they'll say it could be either one. So yes. So whether it's nephew, son, nephew, or brother, um, or half, half-brother. Um, but the, the whole idea is that this is this is another, really he's into another generation is really the indication that we have here. Okay? And so, yeah, some will say, well, this is his... His um, Caleb's nephew. Some will say, no, it's Caleb's brother. And there is some struggle there. Um, so when we come to Othniel, chapter 3, okay? Joshua's passed away. The generations passed away that saw the handiwork of God firsthand. And um, having gathered to their fathers is the way it's described in chapter 2, verse 10. Um, and they didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And so this was the problem, is that there was not a passing on of that knowledge very clearly um, and what it entailed, what it, what it, what it was requiring of them. And so God would raise up judges. And the first judge we're going to find um, is Othniel. And so he comes on the scene, chapter 3. Let's begin with the oppression in verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served cushan Rishathayim rish athai, eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and I just went dead, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Keaz, Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. So we have the circumstance that here right away you know, one generation away, we find that Israel is doing evil aside the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. You say, how could you forget Jehovah when you're one generation? Um, certainly the parents communicated it, um, but it's that fickleness, that, that hard-heartedness that we find consistent in Israel um, that they start looking around. And you and I know that there is a generational rebellion. Every generation has it. There's nothing new. There was nothing new in the 70s. There's nothing new today. Every generation rebels against their forefathers, their parents particularly. And here, whether it was because they chose not to learn, because they chose to forget, um, we find that they Decide to look around at the Canaanites around them. Remember, God left some Canaanites in there to test them for this very purpose. Are you going to remember me or are you not going to remember me? Um, I'm not going to obliterate them at this point and then give you no alternatives. Um, And at some point, um, another new generation has to be confronted with the alternatives and make that decision for themselves. Um, and the old adage is, God has no grandchildren. They have to you, you can't bring your children into knowledge of the Lord. And we, we work really hard at it with our young ones, um, and even to the point almost of indoctrination. and, and that claim can be really had um, and fail to realize that there still comes a time in their life where they will, have knowledge wider knowledge than just what you have given them which is exclusively christ and we need to recognize that what we are exposing them to in our christian homes is an exclusive information and then they get out there in the world and they find out well there's all this these other options well this is what every generation of israel faced i learned at home about jehovah And I walk out there, and there's these Canaanites over, and they have their own gods and goddesses. Okay, Baal is God, moon. Um, The Ash, one of those Asherahs, Asherah is a goddess. Well, the goddess is there. And so they have these options. Well, now in their adulthood, they need to make those choices. And that's why... um, I'm pretty forceful with our teens because I believe their adulthood starts probably about 13, 14. Yeah, that sounds young to you and me, but you need to start confronting them. These are your choices. You choose who you're going to serve. Because at that point, while they're still living at home in our society, we think 18 is the magic age or 21 or 25 for insurance purposes, Um, (laughs) auto insurance. Um, The Bible has it much younger than that while you're still living in my home, I still confront my children with, throughout their high school years particularly, you have to choose what kind of person you're going to be. I cannot enforce my faith on you. I can't do it. All I can do is expose you to the truth. But you are going to, and that's why those 14-year-olds, those 13-year-olds, they're making, 12-year-olds even, are making those kinds of choices. Who am I choosing? That's middle school people. That's a frightening period of time to be sending them into the public realm and exposing them, but that's where they're going to make those choices. They're going to make them between 12 and 16. Enormous amount of choices during that time of whether or not they're going to play into and be intrigued by what the world has in comparison to what they have been incorporated or inundated with in their Christian home. And why do churches invest so much in youth programs? Why do I invest myself in that? You know, I, it's not because you know, I think I'm the only one that can do it. It's because I think it's that serious that our, that our 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds need to have direct access to me and I to them. Because they're confronted with choices, and they need to know that you have a choice, and i am not going to try to isolate them and make them ignorant of what's out there um, and and protect them so that they follow jesus all their life because you can't do it you just can't do it but we want to frame the what's out there from a biblical perspective and help them to critically examine them and and there's not a whole lot of that going on and and there's one group particularly, I think, that fails miserably at that, and that is your legalistic churches, that they set these guidelines and there is there is this rigidness and there is no challenge to critical thinking skills to examine, well, why am I this? And when they get outside of those realms, outside of those Christian schools or outside of those colleges, um, they go berserk. They just... They just do, and it's amazing how many of them are on the roadside spiritually. Either they buy into the legalism, or they are completely disappointed by it. Well, why? Because they can't critic. They've never been taught to critically examine them. And if there's something missing in Israel here, um, it, it, I believe it's it's that facet: is that we need to confront them with critical thinking and examination. Well, what does the world have? What does it really offer? Where does it go to? What's the end? Consider the ways. What is the conclusion of it all? Let's watch. Let's see. Let, let's look. What are your friends? You say they're having great fun? Are they? They're doing nothing that their previous generations already didn't do, or already, di- already did. You realize that? Every generation has played with alcohol. You don't have to say, this is the new one. We have these modern drugs. Yeah, you have psychotropic drugs available to you. Um, But ultimately, they all go down to a a drug. And they've had those available for thousands of years. And every generation is confronted with that. And so I don't have to sit there and say, look at this generation. I can say, well, just look at people 10 years younger than you or older than you that have gone that way. What's their life like? And unfortunately, today even their peers in middle school are already druggies. What are their lives like? And so we find that this is a this is happening very quickly, um, and we shouldn't be so judgmental of Israel and so secure in ourselves that somehow that doesn't happen here. Well, it does happen here all the time. That, that we lose a generation uh, or a portion of it um, because we have not clearly taught them not only who Christ is and what he's done for them, but why is superior to everything else. What is the superiority of Christianity? Well, is it reasonable or not? Can you explain it? Can we engage it? Um, and Can we confront the the fallacies of modern science that said that you're just an advanced animal? Yes, I can do it. Easily. There is no wisdom in science today. And, and we can point at all the studies and research you want, and you can pile up however many you want on either side of any argument, and they'll contradict each other. How many of you are still taking thinking statin drugs are the solution? Well, that, you better catch up because now cholesterol is your friend. Did you hear that? Cholesterol is your friend. Get, and the statin drugs are the wicked thing. And so this is, so we need to be able to engage that. And so that, don't be too critical that here one generation, bam, how can they go from crossing and conquering to all of a sudden doing evil and looking at the balls and the asherahs? Well, How did your kids do it? You know, and one of the things that uh, I challenge my children with, you know, you live your choices. And that's not just about I'm not going to bail you out. That's about you have to decide who you're going to live for. Whether you're going to live for yourself, whether you're going to live for pleasure, whether you're going to live for God, whether you're going to live for some other person and find your completeness in some other person none of there's only one that will really work for them but i can't make that choice for them and so in that context we come to Othniel's work and his is very succinct that is very short we don't have a lot of information we don't have ex- and the first 3 we don't have very much but we do have the pattern and we do have one really important declaration in Othniel's work to his generation and so let's pick it up here in chapter 3, um, verse 7, we just read. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And that's really a relatively short period of time compared to some of the other ones. But for eight years, here comes this king. Now, we have a lot of struggle with this in commentaries um, because they're like, we, you know, why would he come so far um, and be able from all the way from the region of Mesopotamia, which was the Euphrates, They think in Babylon. I mean, that's pretty far off, and come into this region And why would Othniel be selected to be the judge when he's in the south part? I mean, this guy would have had to come all the way through the north um, unless he came down on the other side of the Jordan and came up from the south, whatever. But we find that um, uh, the Lord raised this this Kushan up, um, his name and the declaration of his uh, origins are very clear. Uh, And so we can... Try to uh, wrap our heads around it, but we find that for eight years he gets authority over Israel. To what degree and how extensive that is, isn't relevant. What is relevant is here's Israel in the land they just, their parents just conquered. Your parents just conquered and threw out all the Canaanites. And now God brings someone not a Canaanite. From outside the region to judge you because you made a choice, and that choice was, "I'm not going to serve the God of my parents. I'm going to serve the God of my neighbors instead." And that is the choice confronting young people today. In Christian homes, are you going to serve the God of your parents, or are you going to serve the God of your neighbors? Whether it's at school, or in an extended family, or literally your neighbor, um, wait. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve someone all your life. you got to make that choice. And these people said, we're not going to serve the God of our parents. We're going to serve the God of my neighbor and the Baal and the Asherahs. And here it comes. Here comes the judgment of God. He brings someone, raises someone up from outside of their inheritance. And that's going to be true early on. We're going to have... The Mesopotamian, we're going to have an Edomite. He has his own land outside of the inheritance of Israel. Um, we're going to have uh, some of the Philistines, and they're kind of on the edge of the inheritance, should have been part of the inheritance. And so we're going to find some of these being, being brought forward um, who are going to uh, uh, be the, the problem. Um, it's not really until we get to Deborah that we really have a Canaanite king being the problem. Uh, the third, fourth round of judges that we're going to have a Canaanite king. Uh, largely, these are going to be from outside the land um, to judge them. And so here comes the Mesopotamian Cushan Rishathaim, and for eight years he is he is um, enslaved in essentially Israel, and whether that means that. He doesn't mean he carried them away. It, it's usually um, done by tribute. That is, um, he's going to get half of every crop and everything that comes out of your. He's going to take that. And so they served him. And it says the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, which is the pattern. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So here's Othniel. We've already met him. He's already proven himself. And uh, he is now prepared to um, take over the reins, so to speak, of Joshua for on behalf of Israel. And we have, like we had with Joshua, we have a very important declaration, verse ten: the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. That's not always going to be said of every judge. But here in the book of Judges, it was said, of course, about Joshua. And we have a lot of interaction between Jehovah and Joshua. We come in the book of Judges, and this is the declaration. The Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon him. And so he's going to judge Israel, and he does that by being a, a leader of war. And he gets victory over the king of Mesopotamia. And then it says the land had rest for 40 years. The, the balance of Othniel, the son of Kenna's, uh life. Balance of his life, Israel's at peace. No one's going to mess with them. They have opportunity to reestablish themselves a little stronger in the land. Um, and again, while it is not declared, the evidence is, is that this was sufficient For that generation to figure out, well, serving the gods of our neighbors isn't very smart. It makes the true God mad, and we had to become slaves, essentially, for eight years. Okay? And yes, it seems that almost every generation has to figure that out on their own. Duh. You would think eventually, as the narrative goes on, that someone will say, you know what? This happened to my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents. They did the same stupid thing. Why am I repeating the cycle? Because you are a sinner. And rebellion resides in you, and you are sure, especially when you are 16, that you know everything, certainly more than some old-timer like me. And you have to go through and learn the hard way. We use those terms. What do those terms mean? It means that you have to go through the same slaw that we had to. And you have to get down in there and find out, well, that was stupid. Yeah, you have to go into the slavery, into the drudgery, into the misery yourself, because you're not sure that we really were miserable back then. Well, we were. The 70s were horrible. And so were the 60s and the 80s and the 90s, by the way, for any of you who grew up in those periods. Every generation has the same problems. And so, yeah, I my teenage years were the 70s and 80s. And, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the 70s. You get into 80s, and it didn't improve much. But we discovered something. You know what we discovered? STDs. And we go, oh, we got to be careful. And suddenly by the 90s, we were dealing with AIDS. Oh, we really have to be careful. Well, that didn't last long. I hardly hear anyone talking about that now, that they need to really be careful because of what's out there. It's like the... National psyche has forgotten that in all of this LGBT, GQ, X, y, L G B T G Q XY,L Z nonsense going on, that um, there's a judgment for promiscuity. There is a misery around drug use. I don't care if it's legal. You can legalize pot all you want, and it doesn't change the fact. Alcohol is legal. It destroys lives, destroys families, destroys marriages, destroys fetuses. It's legal. It's not about what's legal. It's about what's good versus what's bad. Okay? And so painkillers can be good, but you abuse them and they'll destroy you. And so we come to this, and here's the decision It's out there, and God raises up one, one guy to gather together the people, and the, the, what they're intimating is all the things that we have seen from the other judges when it says, and he judged Israel. Now, you and I would look at this and say, no, he judged the Mesopotamian guy he beat him in battle. No, he conquered the Mesopotamian. He judged Israel, which means that he imposed what a judge imposes. And that is we are going to repent. We're going to follow the standards of God. We are going to recognize we made a big, big mistake eight years ago that cost us our freedom. It cost us our joy. It cost us our happiness. And now we're going to correct that. And for the next 40 years, they live in a corrected state. Yes, that was a big mistake. But then something happens, right? What is it? You got another group of kids come out that that weren't around when you were all enslaved by the Mesopotamian. But when it says that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel... And he judges Israel, we can intimate all the things that we associated and learned about judges from Moses and Joshua. That there was an imposition and, a, and an acceptance of that imposition by Israel of the, of the law of God. And that's why they had peace. There is no conflict in Israel for 40 years. Why? Why? Because they got rid of the Baals, they turned away from the gods of their neighbors and reformed themselves as the people of God, following after the God of their fathers. And that's what's going to be critical all the way through here. And yes, that is a generational battle. And praise God that in every generation, from every generation, I'm convinced he raises up men who will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord to call that generation out of the foolishness of being attracted to the gods of our neighbors. And we have a lot of them. We have an enormous number of false gods of your neighbors um, that are out there. And I don't even know where to start. I mean, if you don't think that football is a false god, um, you should think about it. They have temples, they have their spirit, their priests, they have, they, I mean, why does anyone care whether this one 20-year-old, 20-something-year-old stands or sits? Who cares? Look at his hair. He needs a haircut. Who cares? The only reason we care is because we've elevated a sport to a god, and therefore, the participants in that are demigods. And they act like it. They act like they're above the law. Well, you choose. You're going to worship that. You're going to take all your cues of living and, and uh, from that. And we can go through that. And, and Mr. Roberts gave the example in Sunday school about, you know, why are you asking actors who they vote for? What makes them brilliant? Nothing. They are able to pretend to be someone they're not on TV. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. And therefore, I should know what drugs you should take. That was a commercial when I was a kid. Honest, it really was. Marcus, well, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Take these drugs. This will get rid of your problem. Why does that work? Because we're stupid. And we think that actors... Are smart because they're rich. And they're only rich because we're stupid. Because we think that that's important. And we throw our money at it because that's a God. And it goes round and round and round. Why do we tolerate these rich people destroying our society? We call them politicians, but they're really just the rich. You can't be poor and run for office in this country on a national level. It's impossible. Why do you tolerate? Because you believe exactly what, uh, what's his name, does in. If I were a rich man, <laughs> everyone would listen to me. Because, yeah. What's his name? Tevier. We agree with Tevier. Yeah, if you're a rich man, everyone listens to you because they think you're smarter than everyone else. No, you just got born in the right family and had the right breaks. Most of them are liars and cheats, and we know it. And we don't have any other choice. We are oppressed by the wealthy, but we have made wealth of God. And so we all look at him and say, wow, he's the richest man I know. So what? He's going to die. And that's why a movie like Scrooge is so important. <laughs> Christmas Carol. He's going to die, and then what? The judgment. But because we've made these false gods in our life, we listen to them, and so every generation has to go through this. And Othniel leads his generation, and he, and he judges them, but he judges them, notice, by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. And yes, it enables him to have a military victory. No one can stand against him, but it also enables him to call the people and say, listen, you had eight years of oppression by this guy because you were stupid. You forgot what your parents lived through. And the reason every generation has to go through this is because they're stupid and they don't believe their parents when their parents say i did this and it was a mistake don't you do it you know what those young people do within five years of hearing that they do exactly what their parents did i have seen it a thousand times in my 30 years of ministry and i've ministered in small churches and I see sins repeated. You know why? Because young people didn't believe their parents when they said this was a mistake. And you know what their statement is to the parents? on parents says, why would you do that? And it says, well, you did it. Yes, and I told you it made me miserable. Well, if it was all right for you, you did it. And my kid said, you did that. That doesn't make it right. And I tried to tell you I want something better for you. Can we learn from the, our parents' mistakes? Apparently not. We gotta go make them ourselves. So Othniel becomes the one. He becomes the parent, if you will. He's the old timer. The Spirit Lord comes upon him, and he judges Israel and brings them back, and says, "Listen, you are eight years in this. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna let you forget it for forty years. While I'm alive, you will not be allowed to forget." that you were dumb and we're not going to be dumb again as long as I'm alive to remind you and as soon as he passes children of Israel do evil inside the Lord and up comes another enemy to conquer them to subdue them and so this is the pattern um, and it's it was a pattern by the way in Moses' judgeship remember he had the problem within a generation. Whoop, 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 whoop. They were the stupidest people. How many times do you have to kill off a bunch of them before they figure it out? Oh, we should probably just stick to God. But they don't. From the calf to the complaining about the, the water to um, eating the meat before it was cooked. I mean, the, the manna wasn't good enough. I mean, come on. These people were horrible. And then to spy out the, you know, all of it is just. So Moses was dealing with this intergeneration, within one generation. Is that intergenerationally? The judges are going to be doing this transgenerationally. They're going to go from one generation to another, to another, to another. Um, And so we have responsibility, and we take it seriously. I try to challenge our young people, and a lot of you have heard me, um lot of, some of you weren't through that and you heard me say don't do this don't do that don't this is stupid this is dumb this is going to get you and yet I look at the kids the young adults that have gone through our program and I look at their lives and I see their choices and I go well you chose poorly live it and maybe when they're miserable enough they'll finally figure it out boy I was dumb why'd I have to go through eight years 12 years 20 years of misery I really just should have been serving the Lord. I knew that when I was a kid. I knew that when I was a kid. My parents told me. My pastor told me. My science school teacher told me. But I didn't believe them. And that's why God has to raise up opposition. And he only brings up a judge when they are sorry. There's only a solution when you are crying out to the Lord, What have we done? What have I done? Then God will bring a solution. And don't think you deserve a solution to the stupid decisions you made. It's when we cry out to God and say, Oh, Lord, how foolish we've been. Please deliver us. That Then he'll raise up a solution. It requires repentance, and then God will respond with deliverance but it can't undo eight lost years for Israel. And that's going to be a brief period of time compared to some of the others. Some of the others are going to be like 20 years that they're going to be with a, with underneath because it takes that long before they confess and repent and say, cry out to the Lord. It takes that long. Some people go, oh, I, I was dumb and want to fix it pretty quick. Some people, it takes 20 years and they're into their mid-adulthood and going, what have I been doing? I knew better than this when I was 10 years old at Word of Life Clubs. And we'll say, yeah, you did. But we had to wait till you were ready to confess this before God to turn and to serve him, the balance of your days. And but for 20 years, you've lived in misery. and So that's what God waits on waits for them to cry out to him with an acknowledgement that they have sinned and that's what we wait for and we're waiting for that for a lot of people that have been through these church doors we have a lot of people comparatively to who's here that are on our church discipline that we're praying i don't know how long it's going to take but i pray someday that they'll realize what am i doing what have i done i need to get this right because i'm wrong and then God can deliver them. Until then, it's just misery. Okay. Well, that's our word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the testimony of Othniel and each of the judges that allowed themselves to be used by you to judge your people. And Lord, we think that. We need individuals raised up to judge the world, but we know that you have already conquered that, that you really need judges to oversee your people as they set their eyes, they cast their sight onto their neighbors, gods, and think that they're superior, that they're more fun, that they're more attractive. And Lord, Guard our hearts and our eyes. Guard our lives from thinking that the gods of our neighbors are anything but false. And Lord, we pray for our young people. And we pray that they might have wisdom from above to learn without having to experience. For truly, the best teacher is not experience but your spirit through your word. And help them to learn this truth that they might seek after the God of the ages and not of their neighbors. And so Lord, keep our eyes stayed on you. We might be faithful all our days to your honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.